0: Hey, it's Jeff. Imagine a world where each of us finds our own unique and sacred purpose,
1: and where we also find a deep sense of belonging within our bodies, with each other, and in relation to this magnificent planet that we call home. Just imagine
0: that world. We're at peace in our own skin. We're at peace on the planet. We're at peace relationally, and each of us has found our own
1: unfolding and idiosyncratic and entirely unique to us sacred purpose. Now, I know that the unconscionable powers that be will continue to do everything in their power to prevent that. The last thing they want is for us to be at peace in our own skin and on the planet, but I know it to be possible. I know it to be possible because I've lived it, and because I've encountered it in others, and because I now see something remarkable happening in the collective.
0: Many of us are now seeing through the veils and realizing what a huge price we've paid,
1: particularly with respect to our individual and collective actualization by buying into and believing the self-serving
0: nonsense that we've been fed by patriarchal structures and systems. We're seeing it, and many of us are experiencing the kind of truth aches that often arise
1: before great change occurs. As we get closer and closer to a dangerous collective precipice, we're left with no choice, but to dismantle that which diminishes our magnificence because we now need all of it to get this species moving in the
0: right direction. There isn't much time left for distortions and distractions. A revolution of the real is upon us. This week's guest, Toko Pa Turner, gives me hope that we can get there. Her story of overcoming and her
1: commitment to healing and transformation quite remarkable. Blending the mystical tradition of Sufism, in which she was raised, with a Jungian approach to dream work, Tokopa founded the Dream School in
0: 2001, from which thousands of students have since graduated. She's the author of the award-winning book, Belonging, Remembering Ourselves Home, which explores the themes of
1: exile and the search for belonging. This book has resonated for readers worldwide and has been translated into 10 different languages. Sometimes called a midwife of the psyche, Tokopa's
0: work focuses on restoring the feminine, reconciling paradox, and reconnecting with the other world. You can connect with her multi-aspected offerings at tokopaw.com. That's T-O-K-O hyphen, dot com. In this enheartened conversation, Tokopan and I discuss belonging. And we focus on the challenges associated with growing up with a deaf mother.
1: And the radical difference between an indoctrinated and a self-originating
0: consciousness in the many ways that our dreamscapes can lead us home. In a world that seems determined to extinguish
1: our uniqueness, this conversation reminds us that it's never too late to excavate and embody our unique sacred purpose,
0: and to bring our callings, gifts, and offerings to a starving world. But before we begin, let's listen to a
1: bit of Trevor Hall's song, Arrows, only one of his many musical gifts to humanity.
0: Got me bleeding a certain kind of feeling ah, ah, ah. but I can never leave it. Good God I know I need it. Ah, ah, ah. The arrows come straight for my heart.
1: Welcome. It's good to be with you.
2: Good to be with you, Jeff. Thanks for having me and congratulations on the new podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you. I'm getting into it. The world needs more
2: Jeff Brown in the flesh, voice flesh.
1: Thank you. I have your book, Belonging, which I'm deeply, deeply and genuinely enjoying. I seldom ever read anything. And lately I've had to read all kinds of books. And I think so far, this is really my favorite one. It's very human it's very um, comfortably self-admitting, it makes me feel invited to share where I am in my own process internally and externally. Um, and one of the things I like the most about it, something I was not able to do in soul shaping in my first book and greatly regret, is you have a way of sort of sharing the challenges of this ongoing belonging and transformative process Without kind of leaning in the direction of sort of pretending you have it all figured out or something, or you've reached this stage of completion with respect to your awakening. And I think that is really, really important because that's the most grounded message we can communicate to humanity, I think. That this really is, if you're going to take on the process of something we call awakening, we can define that in all kinds of different ways, that you need to let go of the idea that there's an enlightened endpoint. And I think you just do that beautifully and it makes me feel like we all have permission to be everywhere we are in our process and, and to not create a false expectation set that layers over. And I think in many ways limits the entire transformative process. So thank you.
0: Mm.
2: For that. Hallelujah. I mean, that's just the the most beautiful validation because Um, I think when I was writing Belonging, I certainly had that invalidating voice with me at all times saying, who are you to write about this subject of which you know so little? And in fact, I think that's what qualifies me to write about it. The fact that I have always felt outside of Belonging. The fact that I have always longed for this elusive thing. And I really just wanted to undertake to bring some of those deep questions out into the open for myself. And the result was a book because the more that I wrote about it, the more I learned about it, the more I discovered. Um, and, uh, And so it really came out of that from the inside out kind of writing so i really am happy to hear that that came across but also that it created a sense of permission to be like you so beautifully said let us all be where exactly we are at at any point
1: hard to imagine how we're going to get anywhere if we don't start from exactly where we are in an effort to be congruent with the notion of an enrealment hour what's real for you now and particularly real for you now with respect to your own quest for an experience of belonging?
2: It's such a big question, because as we record this podcast, we are still in a pandemic. And um, the last almost three years have been characterized for me as a time of extreme isolation, socially speaking, This is because I'm a person who is disabled with chronic illness, and so that makes me a higher risk for catching COVID. So I've had to have sort of extreme measures to stay protected, maybe more so than a lot of the world, which seems to be going back to normal. So in the quest for creating a place of belonging, one of the first things that I do in the book is really just try to define belonging. And I started with the idea that there are so many different types of belonging. You know, most of us think of it in terms of finding a group or a place, a geography or a group of people that we really resonate with. And that is how we sort of unconsciously envision belonging. But I think that there are lots of different kinds of belonging. There's the belonging to a spiritual practice. There's a belonging to your own body There's the belonging to your various identities. There's belonging to relationship to others. There's the belonging to the other than human world, nature, and um, the whole ecosystem and biosphere. So, I mean, this question is complex because I think at any given time, we have varying degrees of both a sense of not belonging and a sense of belonging in other areas, so for me, as I've become less connected to being with other humans, I've become much more connected to nature and to my own creative process so i've been you know once the pandemic struck, I had this really strong urge to withdraw completely from especially social media, and also, of course, because of my illness from the world. And I felt like I just didn't want to interpret what was happening to us. I wanted to live into the brokenness on all of the levels that we were experiencing this kind of, um, and we're still experiencing it, you know, a kind of shattering Um, At so many levels, Uh, obviously, the loss of human life has been insurmountable, but we have also seen a lot of fracturing in our communities, in our relationships with our friends and families, economically, and, you know, all these different levels of fractures. And I didn't want to be too quick to try and find some sort of redemptive interpretation and to rush that process. And so I found myself pulling back and really trying to get comfortable with the bewilderment and confusion of these times. I've learned a lot. I can't say that it's through with me, yet I'm still deep in that process. But I have found some threads that are helping me to navigate the darkness I have been devoted to the practice of doing dream work with others and teaching about dreams in the world, but also, of course, starting with my own dreams and having a relationship with the evolving images that are coming through nightly in my nocturnal dreams. And so i um, so I've been spending a lot of time doing that, and um, some of the threads that I have been pulling on are about the how to frame this, about the, the intelligence that is organizing order out of the disorder that has been collapsing all around us. I too believe that there is. An intelligence greater than our own that needs for this to happen, you know, and we see this in a smaller ways cyclically in nature all the time. How things tend to descend into chaos and disorder before something new reconstitutes itself. And I believe that this is very complex. It's not something that I could, you know, neatly tie up with a bow and say, this is what's happening. But I think that it's true for every one of us are having to look at the ways in which our lives were organized around certain values and principles and relationships, um, but are now going through a period of, of dissolution and fracturing and chaos. And we, each of us, has to find for ourselves what is true, what remains essential when all of that falls away, what is the new sprout of life force or vitality that is coming out of those ashes. This is really varies from person to person, but I think um, on a collective level, we're being asked to do this work to begin to unhook ourselves from old relationships and old organizing structures that are not serving us, not serving the world. And that something new, if it's going to survive these times, has to come out of it and it has to be generative for all involved.
1: Beautifully said. Beautifully said. I have been uh, fascinated. And I, I, this, I think, even began to start to be, began before the pandemic in sort of Trump time, just to see who amongst my circle became more willing to confront their unresolved trauma and to do deeper work within it, and who became even more dissociated than they already were when confronted with these challenges. And I never could have really predicted Who would have gone in the direction of going into a somatic process with respect to this discomfort on a healing and transformative level and who would have fled it like their life depended on it? And I like to believe that as a result of these challenging experiences, we are moving towards a healthier collective experience. But I just feel like the jury is still out for me on that question, because the degree of dissociation feels far more radical than I ever witnessed before, certainly in the bypass community. And the willingness to confront and embrace all this unresolved trigger material also is startlingly off the charts and strengthening. And it feels like this really, on a very simple level, this battle between those of us who are willing to live in an in real consciousness and those of us who are determined not to.
2: Well, and then the irony of the bypass community, as you called it, <laughs> um, is that they believe that they are, you know, the awakened ones. Um, so that makes it especially hard to find a place where we can meet. And, um, but I hear you, but, but I also feel like, isn't it, isn't it embittering to the self? To not hold on to some sort of belief in the transcendent nature of consciousness, you know, like if I were to just give in to the idea that all hope is lost and and that this is it, then I might not be able to contribute anything beautiful to the world. And I, I feel like I live with that question: is the paradox of like how do I stay in love? While also accepting the decline and collapse of civilization and beyond civilization and and also right into the other than human world as well how do i how do I hold both of those things, but it seems necessary to be able to hold both
1: I think that you know at the heart of my work, this whole question of transcendence and imminence and what do we mean by transcendence? Do we just mean a more expansive perspective? Do we mean floating above the human fray and feigning awakened consciousness? I think it's, it's beautifully important to keep striving for a more expansive consciousness. But I think that the key now is for us to get access to that from deep within the body itself. And I think that the bypass community's orientation primarily has been about jumping out of the human experience, bashing the self, the story, the feelings, illness, all of it, the quest for something that feels less painful and calling that awakening or realization or the mastery of consciousness. And ultimately, it doesn't serve anybody because while the world is burning, people are just pondering their transcendent navel. So I, my hope is that In the heart of all of this, what happens is it drops us down deeper into a re embodiment process. And from that experience of re embodiment, we connect more truly and deeply to the natural world. And we begin to inquire into what an expansive consciousness is from right in the heart of our kishkas, rather than through the transcending of them. So I want to go back to belonging because last night I was reading through it and this question of belonging within my own body as a starting point. I related a lot to your, your challenges with your family in early life. I too had what you call so brilliantly, and it, it, it just lit me up to read this, you talk about the death mother. And I'm just going to read a, a definition from page 34 of your book. The death mother is a term for this energy or archetype that resents, abandons, and even wants to destroy her child. As the death mother's target, the child eventually develops the conviction that she is living in a dangerous world and that her life is at risk, which in fact it is. But long after leaving the family home, the child is haunted by the death mother who campaigns against her from
0: the inside out. I read the term death mother. I've never heard this term before. And I, of course, remembered my death mother
1: and remembered my whole process. It helped me to contextualize my whole process of belonging in my 20s, in particular, and therapeutically in my 20s, where I was trying to get as far away from the world as humanly
0: possible in order to figure out a way to belong inside of my own body, And to feel as
1: though I have a right to be here and that what I'm experiencing, even on a basic sensation level within my body, is something that belongs to me and something that I'm worthy of. And I was reflecting, went for a walk this morning, and I was reflecting on this idea that, you know, I think a lot more of us had a death mother than any of us have really realized and that so many of us as a result are stuck on a very basic level before we talk about true relational belonging with this feeling that we simply don't have a right to be here and don't have a right to be happy here and don't have a right to be joyous here because we did not internalize the message that our mother wanted that for us um, i just wonder if you could speak a little bit more about your experience if you're comfortable with the death mother and where you see that living itself out in the collective.
2: Yeah, well, I'm glad you went right for the Death Mother. I, I, sometimes people get to chapter three, and then they need to take a long break from the book. But I felt like if I was going to authentically write about my own relationship to belonging, that I had to tell some of my story And it was probably the hardest chapter to write in the book because I wanted it to be compassionate as well. Because I think the thing about the archetype of the death mother is that it comes from somewhere. And it's important that we trace its story of origin because we give very little support to women raising babies in modern culture. And when you have no support, when all of your, whether it's financial support or emotional support or community support, when all of those things are taken away from you, your resources are so limited that you develop a kind of a a scarcity mindset which wants to take from others where it can get it. And so... So this can result in in jealousy and depriving from others and take trying to take other people down. And so there's, there you know, I think one of the, you know, it was so telling what you were saying that you had never come across this term and nobody talks about this, which is why I thought it was really important to sort of broach the subject. Because... We have this collective idea of mothering, which is just this archetype of the good mother, the compassionate mother, the endlessly nurturing and loving mother. And it's the only aspect of the archetype that is allowed in collective acceptability. And so anybody who has had a different experience maybe was in a relationship with a mother who was abusive towards them or neglectful towards them or hurtful, then we can feel as if we don't know our own minds. We can't trust our own experiences because we don't see it modeled or explained anywhere in the outside world. Um, But I do think it's much more common than anybody talks about. And it's one of the things that so many people have brought Back to me after reading the book was a kind of deep feeling scene um, when talking about the death mother because we do of course internalize that death impulse we could call it that but we just stop ourselves at in our tracks at any creative impulse at any relational impulse at um, using our voice in a public way at. Trusting what we know to be true at these very intimate levels, we are killing off the creativity and contributions that we have to give to the world as a result of that nurturing side of the mother not being modeled for us. So you can imagine what that looks like on a collective scale. It's like never enough, never enough, always having to, I mean, the economy is a good example, you know, just like growth for growth sake, even if that growth means killing everything in its path. So, I think the work of healing from the Death Mother is very, very personal and arduous. You know, it can take really a lifetime to begin to rebuild that foundation of loving oneself, of giving oneself the permission to be in this body, to be in the world to be in a room to to have a disagreement to have something beautiful to offer and so on and so forth but we need that more than anything because so long as we are following the over culture's path for us and not cutting our own path then we're just creating, we're, we're sort of metastasizing this very cancerous and bottomless hungry mouth, which never gets filled. And, I, I, you know, we're speaking about this a bit abstractly, but I think each of us knows this in ourselves like, how, you know, when is enough enough? When have you accumulated enough? When have you achieved enough? When have you lost enough weight? When have you, you know, When is it okay to finally speak? When is it okay to um, share what you have to share? And so on. But if we're constantly sort of killing those creative impulses, we're never going to change the culture because each one of us holds a tiny corner of the culture we need to build going forward.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think in my own work, I spent a lot of work, lot of years, both in talk therapy and in somatic psych around early mother material. And what I found sort of interesting and ironic about it, I felt like if I could just find a way to see and understand the roots of my mother's experience, as an example, and you alluded to that, in a way it would help me to feel to not personalize so much of what was internalized from the relational messaging with her but because i didn't get quite enough in the way of healthy reflection from her my adult self in certain ways didn't develop enough to be able to stand separate from her and see her for who she was i needed to see her for who she was to understand that all this craziness that emanated from her was a function of her context her sociology her circumstances her unresolved trauma but How to see that clearly if I'm still on some level embodying the fractured child self that results from that relational field. And it's almost like you have to make a leap of faith to some other adult integrated individualized consciousness. to See the mother for who she was rather than just to see her uh, in the way that you saw her as a child and adolescent. Do you feel as though you've reached a place in your adult development where if you think about your mother, your death of mother, you can really see more clearly who and what she was and understand that it was not to be personalized, what it is that she reflected back to you?
2: Well, I think there's a both and on this because it was personal. And it is personal. And you and I wouldn't be who we are today unless we had those experiences. And so for me, forgiveness, I've spent a lot of time thinking about forgiveness and what that looked like. And I would say, you know, well into my 30s, I wanted to try and have a relationship with my mother because there was an image a fantasy image in my mind of what a mother-daughter relationship could be like. And so I kept going back in the hopes that if I had thicker skin, if I could just depersonalize, if I could have more compassion for where she was at, that I could create a functional relationship. But this ended up just putting me back into a toxic dynamic over and over again. And so for me, forgiveness is not necessarily continuing to have a relationship with the person who hurts you, but it's maybe just to get to a place where I have stopped wishing that things could have been different, which means really coming to a place to accept and even value that those ways in which I was fractured have shaped me uniquely in order to be able to have written this book, to um, have the relationships with other people that I have to have an exquisite love of nature and compassion for others who are suffering. So, but the depersonalization thing is important too, because it's valuable for us to be able to have that bird's eye view where we can take a step back. And and for me, that really came from doing a lot of ancestral healing because my mother was born in Warsaw in 1946. So my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and she was literally born in the wake of World War II. And everything her parents carried, my grandfather had been in concentration camp for three years and they were sending him to the gas chambers in Auschwitz when he jumped off the train and he broke his leg, but he managed to survive. And that's why I exist, you know, because of that act. I spent a long time tracing my ancestor's journey especially my Jewish ancestors. And this helped the contextualization process for me to try to understand what were those impediments that created what we in modern times would call mental illness, but is really just trauma, collective trauma. And trauma bodies that come out of cultural somatics that my mother was and is still likely carrying. And and even deeper than that, you know, looking one of the things I do in that chapter is um I draw a lot on the research of Daniela Sieff, who is an evolutionary psychologist. She's really interested in what are the origins of infanticide and why at certain times in certain places would Mothers um, actually kill their children, and that helped too, because it really helped me understand what drives a person to have that impulse to to kill and it mostly comes out this out of this desperate need to just survive on the extremely limited resources one has and then the final place where I drew a lot of insight from is working with myths. And I sort of retell the story of Medusa in that chapter because I think Medusa tells us it's, you know, I look at what happened to Medusa and why she became a kind of death mother as she did. She is that archetype of one look and your whole body turns to stone. Which is a a sort of reenactment of what you might experience psychologically of that sort of frozenness or paralysis or creative death that happens. It really, and, or even dissociation. We become quite stony and, and cold as a result of that developmental dynamic. So I became really interested in, in what happened to Medusa before she became Medusa. So just drawing on those three different paths have really helped me to, yes, get to a place where I do think I understand um, why my mother was and is the way that she is. But I also have chosen to consciously Estrange from that relationship because I am too sensitive and too open hearted to be in a relationship where somebody is going to be abusive towards me. I'm not that thick skinned person I think I always wished that I could become. And um, I, I failed miserably at becoming that. So I'm just embracing my sensitive nature. And I've just chosen not to be in that relationship. And since, since making that choice um, in the last 20 years or so, my life has become a lot better. And in some ways, it still remains quite painful because I don't have that family unit that, um, that other people do have. And so I have to derive deep connection from my extended family.
1: So many people who've had a death mother or who have a death mother, many don't survive in this life. Many become very neutralized or very generic or very oriented towards people-pleasing, probably in an effort to finally gain somebody's approval. It seems to me that you're one of the people, and I, I applaud you for your sensitivity, which I recognize to be indistinguishable from your brilliance, I think, what is it about you that allowed you to become this very individuated, very, I think Gene Houston maybe used the term polyphrenic, like a multi-aspected soul, deeply inquiring, uh, self-originating, which I think is really the only thing that will save us in this world, really. How did you manage to To become this being, Tokopa, um, (laughs) having had a death mother. Essentially, what I'm asking for those people who may be listening who've had or who have a death mother and want to find a way to actualize their possibilities, find their sacred purpose, however we language it, Mm -hmm. you know, what are some of the steps that one can take to get there? Mm
2: -hmm. Oh, it's such a good question. I I feel like I've been asking this question my whole life, you know, why is it that you can take two people who have relatively the same horrendous circumstances and one of them just goes on to repeat those patterns or perhaps even worse, you know, ends up, you know, not surviving, whereas another um might thrive. I have quite literally been carrying that question for my whole life. I'm I'm not sure exactly that I have an answer in a general way, but for me personally, you know, there were years and years where I really felt inadequate to most people and I have to say that I still struggle with this on a daily basis of uh feeling inferior. And a lot of that came out of not having those um, regular ritualized thresholds that other people go through. Like, you know, I left home when I was 14, going on 15. I never graduated high school. I never got a driver's license. I never went to college. I never had a friend group because I lived in the system and, you know, was just struggling to make ends meet. And in some ways, this inhibited me massively. And in other ways, it freed me because I didn't have all of the indoctrination that comes with those things. And so I didn't know any better. But I still had this hunger to learn. I was curious about the world and I was able to take risks. And so from that young age, you know, reach, making a choice to leave home because I believed that there was something better for me out there meant that I took a huge risk. And I'm not sure at 15 years old that I had any idea what that was going to look like, that I was literally making a choice for the rest of my life to be an outsider and to give up every privilege that a person with a family has. But as a result, I became, I would say, quite intimate with the forces of nature moving through the world. I really feel as if I was raised by my dreams. I would have these incredibly powerful dreams And I would pay attention to them and they spoke to me and they taught me things I didn't know. And when I was about 19 years old, I discovered Carl Jung and all of the people who have emanated from that lineage of um, analytical psychology and mythology. And I became deeply interested and read everything I could get my hands on because here was this Lineage of people who were excited about dreams and who validated the importance and values, uh, the value of paying attention to our dreams and who were spending their lives learning the language of symbolism and metaphor. I can't say why it captured my fascination and love so deeply that's just a soul thing really that I, I don't think i could explain but i knew that those were my people and so i pursued that and i have i have apprenticed myself to my dreams my whole life and i have to say if i if i have if i carry any wisdom it comes from that and the way that i understand dreams is that dreams are really just nature naturing through us. They transcend culture, they transcend age, they transcend language, they transcend all barriers. And this way of speaking in images, I believe, is the language of the earth itself. So if anything of what I offer carries some wisdom to it i owe it to that whatever we can call that you know we could call it god we could call it i i love the term that martin prechtel uses he calls it the holy in nature the holy in nature and it's coming through all of us it's it's as natural as breathing but in, in modern times, of course, we, we have dismissed and discounted our dreams. And, and most people, the best that they will ever hope to have a relationship with their dreams is through a dream dictionary. <laughs> and these things are almost uh, entirely rubbish. Um, but actually, all indigenous cultures from since the beginning of time around the world have centered um, tribal life around paying attention to our dreams and being curious about what they have to say. And so I've devoted my life to bringing dreaming back to the people (laughs) and endlessly engaging and exciting and mystical and gorgeous and constantly forcing synchronicity out into the open. And it has kept me alive.
1: Yeah, it's almost like you, you have this... And maybe this is the answer to my question, why do some people find their way to individuated experience of self and others don't after growing up in very difficult, horrific circumstances? Your tendency to look in all places for information about what this life is and who you are in this life strikes me as one of the most, just that profound sense of wonder, you know, intrinsic curiosity The soul seems to me to be an important part of this question of why somebody becomes you and why somebody doesn't. And um, I've asked this question, I did a a dialogue with Rob Resny last week for the podcast and asked this question too. I'm fascinated in particular by, it's very clear to me that being made generic is, uh, you know, it may benefit the puppeteers, but it certainly doesn't benefit the human collective, or our relationship to the Earth. It seems to me this very individuated path of finding what I would call sacred purpose, we can call it whatever we want to call it, is the key to most everything. Because if everybody found whatever that thing is, or whatever those things are, in the most uniquely individuated polyphrenic element of the self. You, The last thing you want to do is do harm to others. You don't feel the frustrations that come with not knowing who you are or why you're here. The confusion starts to fall away. You wake up most mornings pretty much clear on what it is that you're here to do. And I think it's the most important question of all. How is it that somebody finds their way through this madness, these tunnels, these trauma tunnels and chambers, and becomes somebody with a unique and profound and not replicable voice, it's something. So thank you for that. I want to talk about one other thing, if we could, from your book. You talk about something called necessary rebellion, which I think is part of what we're talking about in some ways. So let me just read a bit about what you said on page 77. Though we think of rebellion as warrior-like, it's really about making the self vulnerable in a heavily armored world. The act of rebellion is to expose and be exposed in those places that have been kept hidden for too long. Because the rebel chooses to speak up with her voice or her action against tradition, she risks her life and the security of false belonging for the chance at being truly alive. In so doing, she incites aliveness and others a little bit more. The willingness to rebel from the expected norms, roles, and silent contracts of establishment comes out of knowing that one cannot afford to build resentment. I just love this. Resentment which comes from the decision to go against one's truth embitters the self. It somatizes in the body and takes on the burden of pain as if it was ours were ours alone. The whistleblower on the other hand reveals a sheer complicity. It says I expect more from myself and from you, and in that stance the pain becomes in a sense communal. The dissenting voice speaks for the voiceless. And in some ironic plot twist, it is in the revolt against outdated belonging that real solidarity can be born. Your willingness to speak the truth about something that disagrees with you is what allows for the undamming of communication, giving all involved a fertile place to grow and the chance to build a real or an enrealed village. Close quote. And I I think this this strikes me as important with respect to the question of how somebody becomes individuated and actualizes and excavates all these profound callings, gifts, and offerings that live inside of them, has to have a willingness to what I would call self-originate or rebel against notions of meaning, purpose, and value that don't resonate with their lived experience. Can you say a little bit more about this notion of necessary rebellion?
2: Mm, Yeah, There there are two perspectives. One is the outer perspective and the other is the inner perspective. And we don't really, I think, have the ability to disagree with an outer situation or perspective, unless we have generated that originality within. And I love the word originality because it has the root origin in it. Originality for me is really about trying to dip into that well within and to find out what really is true for us. But we can't really do that until we've gone through a period of exile of our own and um, so it's a sort of initiatory process and I, I talk about this in the book i call it um, initiations by exile and most of us have a one or two of these moments big pivotal moments in our lives when we can relate to having to make a big break from a group or an established place or a relationship or a career where we had to split because that place revealed itself as a place of false belonging, which is a term that John O'Donohue, the poet, the Irish poet John O'Donoghue came up with, um, false belonging. And I sort of riff on it in, in this book because false belonging is just this idea that You know, you can get certain aspects of belonging in various places, but there are also these silent contracts in place where it's maybe not spoken out loud, but there are certain things, agreements that we have in place, which allow us to maintain our stature in that place of belonging. That could look like, you know, it's okay to work here, but we don't want to hear about your feelings, or um, you're going to get interrupted in board meetings, or it's okay for you to be seen with me, but just so long as you agree with my policies, or, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which we can have a, a place of false belonging. It could even be an intimate relationship where it's okay for us to be in relationship but it's not okay for you to get angry or be sad or disagree with me. And we can maintain those places and false belonging for a certain period of time, but there usually comes a point where we can't tolerate it anymore, where the need to say what is true for us becomes stronger than the need to retain that place and belonging. And when that happens, and sometimes it happens by a gust of fate, where we're suddenly cast out of an old place of belonging, and we find ourselves in a period of exile, it could even look like a physical illness, you know, some sort of breakdown of the body where we just can't go at the pace we were going before, and suddenly we're sick or or broken in some way. And we find ourselves alone and isolated and we can't go back to whatever the back was. And we don't have any idea what's coming next. In a way, the pandemic is sort of a collective version of that. But in these times, there's actually a potential to view it as initiatory in nature, Where we have to do this and we're sort of coming full circle here because we started the conversation about this process of differentiating between what are the inherited values of my culture or my group or my family or my relationship that I have been carrying, which are no longer true for me. And what is underneath that? What is really essential for me? What do I truly believe in? What makes me feel alive and resonates with truth? Um, And then it's only at that point when we have gone through that grieving process, which can sometimes take an extremely long time. I mean, you know, it could be 15 years of going through this sifting and sorting process before we really come into a kind of the medicine of who we truly are at that soul level. And it's only at that point that we feel strong enough to bring those disagreements out into the open and in, in some way. So this idea of originality, I think, comes out of this process, out of really having first to dismantle those inherited sense of of worth and value, and instead really give energy and voice and vitality to what is uniquely true for us. And for me, this always comes through in the dreams. Um, Whenever I am leaning too far to the left in a biased way of thinking, the dreams will produce the opposite. If I am, you know, as an example, if I am thinking that there's not enough and I'm in a state of scarcity, which is consuming me mentally during the day. At night, I may dream of a banquet, (laughs) a feast before me, which helps to remember how much richness and, and nourishment there is there to be shared. And so there's this constant sort of balancing effect that takes place in this psyche, which is a sort of regulating system that each of us has. And um, if we can learn to follow those instincts and impulses, they begin to grow and they become stronger. And then we can begin to rely on them. And eventually that becomes, I think, the voice of originality in each of us. And I don't really believe in this idea that we have a single purpose on Earth. In fact, I, I really think that's a, a damaging idea for most people because they can spend a whole lifetime, you know, asking, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? But I think purposes is really um, incredibly diverse and different day-to-day, year-to-year, era-to-era for each of us. And it's much more about what brings us alive, what gives us vitality in every single moment, in every conversation, in every interaction, in every day. And that, I think, becomes foundational over time. And then when you did then it becomes much easier to disagree, doesn't it? You know, when you really come into your own truth and you know, you know what's right from wrong for you. And you're much less likely to fall into those traps of false belonging. And then belonging becomes something that you build from the inside out instead of searching for it as as something that's outside of yourself that maybe one day you'll find that group of people. Instead, it becomes something that you cultivate over time as you grow that shelter around yourself that others can belong in.
1: Beautiful. Yeah, I think that if you can find your ever unfolding sense of who you are and why you're here, that if you can belong to that, which is intrinsic to your unique incarnation, then there's more of a tendency to bring others that resonate with that and that reflect that back to you into your your world. I don't see that as a sort of a universal intentionality thing. I think you really do that from your humanness uh, in many ways. and. I've experienced myself for a long time like a like a car on a highway that has an encoded directionality. And it does have some particular qualities, but it, it's more archetypal. It's like more moving in the direction of creation or more called in the direction of surrender in whatever form that comes in. And then there's a the freeway sign that tells me what the next place to pull off to do is. And then I get back on this highway and there's something else waiting for me that's intrinsically encoded within me do you feel that as you've done so much work within the dream world that that which the dream world is trying to reflect back to you about who you are and why you're here let's say it's become less necessary to look for it in your dreams because it's become more of just
0: a part of your conscious reality I think there are missions beyond the development of the self that
2: become important as you get older, as you develop a kind of stability in your personhood, there becomes, um, there grows a greater generosity for casting your gaze outside of the development of self into the, the more than human world outside of the human drama even. Um, and I, I particularly think this is the task of the second half of life is to be able to perceive the the needs of the the larger biosphere and to have a bit more generosity of, of spirit and of energy to carry some of those needs and and work with a kind of fidelity towards raising those voices that, that, you know, into the open. So yes and no, you know, because I, I still very much depend on my dreams. I'm constantly going wrong, you know. And, um, and for me, there isn't a state of arrival because we're just dynamic beings and just Getting into a relationship, into, into a deeper relationship with that dynamism that flows under and through all of nature is a lifelong practice. You know, I always think of the, um, the Taoists and uh, how they devoted their lives to understanding the, the intricacies of nature's dynamics and um, and did you know collectively quite a good job at at naming all of those things and combinations of things. Um, but uh, but I'm I have a long way to go, you know. And um, just getting comfortable with the fluctuations of and cyclical nature of life just seems to be an ongoing challenge. So I still pay very deep attention to my dreams and still really uh, depend on them to tell me when I'm putting a foot wrong and or where I could be going in a novel direction. And so, yeah, but I think the idea of self-development has lost a lot of its um, interest for me at this point in my life because I'm I'm just much more concerned about the life that extends uh, beyond myself. If that makes sense,
1: it makes complete sense. I have the exact same experience. You know, I think you reach a stage where you're not really exactly done with the self, but where you're okay enough with the self that you start looking horizontally and relationally outward to see what offering has to be brought into the world at large, and um, I relate to that. So I wanted to close with one lovely quote from belonging but before I do that I I wanted to just say thank you to you for having whatever we call it the courage let's say to individuate from the very discouraging challenges of early life I remember when I saw you in Montreal on stage I was never comfortable on stage. And I just looked at you and thought, as you were presenting, and thought, wow, this woman gives me hope that brilliance is possible in a world where it is so often so difficult to find it. So whatever it is in you, Tokopa, that chose to continue to bravely find your way
0: to the uniqueness of you. Well, thank you for that. And let me close from um, with a little short paragraph from Belonging that I quite like on page 78. The world needs your rebellion. The world needs your rebellion. So important to emphasize. And the true song of your exile.
1: In what has been banned from your life, you find a medicine to heal all that has been kept from our world. We must find the place within where things have been muted and give that a voice. Until those things are spoken, no truth can find its way forward. The world needs your unbelonging. It needs your disagreements, your exclusion, your ache to tear the false constructions down. To find the
0: world behind this one. Close quote. So beautiful. Thank you. Thanks to everybody for listening. The dark is all around me, but I'm so glad it found me. Yeah. Over the moon and through stars, arrows come straight for my heart.